five, four, three, two, one. Let's go. Diary of a Kidney Warrior podcast in partnership with Kidney Care UK, sharing faith, knowledge, hope, and love. Hi, and welcome to Diary of a Kidney Warrior. My name is Dee Moore, and I am a stage four kidney warrior. This podcast is dedicated to encourage, educate, and inspire as we explore all aspects of kidney disease, related chronic illnesses, and health. If you have any questions or ideas for topics you would like me to cover, please get in contact with me on social media using the handle Diary of a Kidney Warrior. In today's episode, I am bringing you a kidney warrior story from a parent's perspective. Now there's always something you can learn from someone's story, something that can bring inspiration and hope. My guest today from Belfast, Northern Ireland is Elizabeth McKenna. Elizabeth joins me to share the story of her 10-year-old son, David, who is born with chronic kidney disease and the lessons they as a family have learned along David's kidney warrior journey. Hi, and welcome to Diary of a Kidney Warrior, the podcast. How are you doing today, Elizabeth? I'm gritty. Thank you. How are you? I'm good. I'm really good. I'm really excited about our interview today. This is the first time, actually, that I will be interviewing the parent of a child with CKD. So we're going to be looking at something that we on Diary of a Kidney Warrior podcast have not looked at before, and that is a parent's perspective of what it's like when your child has CKD and the different challenges, the different highs and lows of what it is to be on that journey. And so, yeah, I'm really excited to talk with you and to learn more. So without further ado, my first question is, how did David's kidney warrior journey begin and how was he diagnosed? David was diagnosed at birth. I had a relatively easy pregnancy. There was no signs of chronic kidney disease before pregnancy or during pregnancy. And it was when he was born, he initially didn't really, he looked well. He came across like a healthy, normal delivery, normal baby. And as I started to feed him, I could see that he he wasn't maybe feeding and putting on weight as they would have liked it to happen. So we stayed in a wee bit longer in hospital post-delivery and he did start to feed a bit better. But as the week went on, I just knew that there was something, but I didn't know what it was. He was just very tired and lethargic and he wasn't really, like he could open his eyes and all, but you could just tell there was definitely something and the midwife kept saying oh no it's just you know he just needs a wee kick he's he's still you know he's used to being in your tummy and by day seven I got a different midwife and I told her you know there's just something not right I don't know what it is and thank god I wasn't breastfeeding I was feeding him with a bottle so I knew exactly how much was going in and she said right well don't worry about it let's sit down and we'll weigh him we'll take a look at him and we'll see and I said right okay And by this stage, I was ready to go to hospital. So I was just like, look, if somebody has to, I was a new mummy, was my first child. If somebody has to teach me how to feed him, I'm really not precious. You know, I must be doing something wrong. And she weighed him and she had a look at him and she said, 
no, I think you need to go to the hospital. And I'll never forget it. I was still in my jammies. And she said, take your time, pack a bag for you and the baby because the likelihood will be you will stay over. And I said, right, okay. So I did that. And like, I did it quite quickly, but it wasn't really fast, if you know what I mean. But I did like within the hour we were in the hospital. And I remember getting over and going to any and the consultant standing there waiting for us saying, what kept you? And I remember thinking, she told me not to rush. So we went into any. David got his bloods done and they kept coming in and asking loads of questions about family history. And, and I couldn't understand why. And then by within about three hours, they basically said, your son is going to intensive care. He's got kidney failure. And I was like, right. And I had no idea what that meant, by the way. Absolutely none. I knew there was something, but I thought like maybe a sugar levels or something, you know, like he needed a, a bit of a kick. That was about the height of it. He had two arms, he had two legs. He didn't look like there was anything wrong with him. So I was like, right, okay. And like he was seven days old, I had just given birth. I was still really sore from labor. You know, my emotions were all over the place. And I was like, right. And I remember getting the intensive car thinking, is my baby going to die? Like that was the height of the information they give us down there. And I remember like crying to the nurse in intensive care saying like, they tell you how to have a baby, they give you all the details you know, all the pain relief, all the things that can happen. They tell you bit by bit what is going to happen, but nobody actually tells you after, you know, they don't explain, you know, they don't go into the same depth. So I remember crying to her and I remember her saying, your child is going to have lots of medical appointments. And I was thinking, right, at least he's not going to die. That's not the end of the world. And I'll never forget it. It was in the middle of the night and the renal consultant came in and I remember she was wearing a white top and it felt like an angel had just came and she had said, she was very nice and she said, your child is really sick, but if I had got here sooner, your child wouldn't be in intensive care. So that made me feel a bit better because it was like, right, well, okay. So she said, your child will stay here till tomorrow and then we will move them on to the ward. So I was thinking, right, okay, that's not that bad. And then I said to her, so... Like, can you die with this? And she said, well, sometimes, yes, but your child's not going to die. And then I said, is he going to be on dialysis? Which I had no idea what that was, by the way. I just had heard the term dialysis, didn't know anything about it. And she said, hopefully not. And I was like, right, okay. So we went, the next day we went to the ward and we stayed there for two weeks and they did lots of tests on him. And they came back and said that he had stage five, grade five reflux. And it was probably the worst reflux she had ever seen in Northern Ireland. And his kidney function at that time, by the time they got him was like 6%. But by the time they gave him medication and fed him and evened out all his bloods it went back up to about 18 percent so he he leveled off at 18 percent at that point she said like I worked full time she said I don't think you'll be able to go back to work I was like right she said he'll get a feeding tube down his nose 
And sure, a newborn baby, they just pull the feeding tube out all the time. And, you know, it had to go back in. And I remember thinking, there's no way. You know, I was a healthy woman. I had never experienced having to care for really a sick adult or anybody. You know, I had never been in hospital bar having my own child. You know, I'd never been sick. So I had no idea of what was coming down the line. But to be fair, David rallied around a wee bit and he did get out of hospital without a feeding tube because I was thinking, how am I going to go to work? You know, and at the time, my daddy was due to retire. So I wasn't going to be able to go back to work. And I was doing a degree as well. In the middle of it all, I was doing a degree. And my mummy and daddy said, no, you are going back to work and your daddy is going to retire because he was due to retire anyway, to be fair. So he retired a bit sooner and we will help you. And David Saddy, we will help you get through. And that's what happened. But we were fortunate enough that he didn't need a feeding tube for the first year. And I was feeling very empowered by that. You know, oh, this is great. You know, he was eating minimal stuff, but it was enough to, you know, put on weight because every clinic appointment they measured his weight the nurse came out to the house to measure the weight to make sure he was still on target but by the time he was one you knew he wasn't growing anymore he wasn't able to keep up and we had the consultant said at the time it's now time for a feeding tube and we discussed the options of you know a tube going down your nose a tube going into your tummy And she had said, you know, David has to get to the age of four before he can have a transplant. So you have, well, three years now, basically. And are we going to traumatize him by putting a feeding tube down his nose? Or are we going to insert a peg into his tummy? So we felt the best option at that time was to put a peg in a feeding tube in David's tummy. And he got that done at one I resisted the whole from naught to one. I resisted the feeding tube as much as I possibly could. But when we got that feeding tube, it genuinely transformed our lives because you were able to get the fluids, the medicines. Even if he vomited them up, there was a way of getting them in. So the feeding tube really did transform our lives. And that was okay. But when he did that operation, when he came out of it, he didn't pee afterwards. And they were like, right, okay. So he was taken back down and they put a catheter in and was able to pee. And I remember the consultant saying, it's a plumbing issue. We don't need to worry about it now. And I remember thinking, well, when you call a plumber, he fixes the problem and then he goes again. So I remember that at the time. I didn't really think very much of it because it was like, right, okay, well, it can be fixed. We'll move on. So from birth, you had so many challenges to deal with and the, the shock of when you've got that newborn baby and you think everything is okay and then you see over time that there's something wrong and then to have those fears confirmed must have been really challenging for you to go through that and that first year of learning that he has CKD and then the feeding tube, but then seeing the benefit of the feeding tube and seeing how that transformed his life must have been very comforting through that time. Totally. It totally was. And I suppose speaking to other parents as well, but it's just an emotional roller coaster from day one because, you know, 
David was a sick baby, so you weren't able to get out to the mother and toddler groups. You weren't able to go out, you know, when your friends were all going out, you know, you were mopping up sick or vomit or, you know, you were up all night long because, you know, you, you needed to catch a urine sample. And if you didn't catch it, it was going to be another 24 hours before he peed. You knew he needed an antibiotic, but you didn't know which antibiotic because you had to get a pee. And as a baby, that's really hard because you need a clean catch. You know, you can't really, they tell you to put a pad in the nappy, but nine times out of ten, that comes back contaminated and it's like, get a clean. So, yeah, I mean, it was an emotional roller coaster, but the goal was always get to four. So, in my head, it was a short term. Once we get to four and we get a transplant, you know, so we just kept going. We just dig deep, whatever faced us. We just had to overcome it. And at two, it was very much David is going to need a, a urine bag, a super pubic catheter, put in at two. And I remember I really couldn't get my head around that one. That was a very tough one. And I was like, what do you mean? And she was like, he's going to have a super pubic catheter. And I was like, he's going to go to nursery. He's going to go to school with a bag, with a urine bag. And she was like, yes. And I remember my goal had always been to make sure that David was as independent as he could possibly be. And I was like, it just didn't sit well with me, the super pubic catheter. And I remember saying, but it's a 21st century. Are you telling me? There are no alternatives that David is going to have to go to school with a urine bag wrapped around his leg. And she said, well, there's a thing called a metrobinoff and it's an operation and there's a hole in the belly button. But they generally get that when they're older. And I said, no, I want that now. And we will do whatever it takes to manage that. You know, whatever aftercare, we will manage that at home. If he's to get catheterized every two hours, which was what, was going to have to happen we will do that he would have to have an, an indwelling catheter at night with a urine bag going in at night hanging for while he's sleeping I was like we will do all of that and she said I will go away and speak to the surgeon but we've never done it on a two-year-old before I don't think he will be happy about that so I was like well then I would like to meet him but I didn't need to he agreed to do it at two he did the Metrobinoff and we still have a Metrobinoff now and he will have it all his life. And it has been fabulous. It has been great for David and it empties his bladder because he doesn't fully empty his bladder. And we needed that done before transplant. So from two to four, David had a relatively no hospital stays or, or things like that. So... For people that don't understand about that type of catheterization, what is involved? You said he has to be catheterized every two hours. So what does that mean? So that means there's a hole in his belly button and we have a catheter and we put the catheter into the belly button and drain whatever urine is left in his bladder. So he can still go to the bathroom. He still goes to the bathroom himself, but he doesn't fully empty his bladder. So every two hours we go in and he's 10 now, so he's getting a bit better at doing it himself. But we go in and empty his bladder. We just do it, you know, like David has to go to the bathroom and we go to the bathroom and catheterize him and then he comes out again. There's no pain, there's no... 
there's no issues and he he took to it very well to be fair but that was a requirement for transplant that because if he wasn't emptying his bladder it was going to damage the kidney transplant so we needed to find a solution to ensure that the urine didn't go from the bladder up to the kidney and that's what we do so he still and he will do that for the rest of his life so when you say every two hours is that literally throughout the night as well no so throughout the night he when he bed at about eight or nine we put a catheter and indwelling catheter in and we tape it to his belly and then the urine we have a big urine like a three liter bag and it's attached to the catheter and it just drains in and then we take it off in the morning and dispose of it and he goes off to school so it's every two hours during the day that's a big commitment that sounds very challenging it is it's massive and particularly when you go to school because he obviously then needs a classroom assistant because he was so young he needed an assistant who was medically trained in doing it so he does that in school and anywhere he goes so like this morning he's singing in a concert at the weekend and he has drama for four hours so he was catheterized before he went in I went in two hours later and catheterized him and I'm now sitting outside waiting till he's finished to catheterize him again. So yes, it is very labor intensive, but it gives him the freedom, you know, to not have a bag around his leg, basically. So yeah, I mean, it works for us. I'm not going to lie. It's very, very challenging. And there always has to be somebody. If it's not mummy, daddy, granny, granda, somebody trained, you know, you can't just leave him. And that can pose challenges, you know, if the classroom assistant's sick or the two people that are trained in school are sick, we have to go in and do that if he wants to attend school, if we want them to attend school. So it can be challenging, yeah. But, yeah, we just have to do it. It's just part and parcel. We made that decision to ensure that he can have a, you know, a free life. You know, he doesn't have it attached to him or we made that decision so we have to deal with but yeah it is challenging. I'm sitting here amazed because to make that commitment as a parent cannot be easy but like you said you're doing it because you want him to be able to access the kind of activities that children do be able to do drama and and things like that and to be able to attend school I just have to say you're absolutely amazing. David went on to have a kidney transplant so tell me about how that came about okay so it was sort of a given really and I don't know we're from Northern Ireland and I don't know if you know about our transplant unit in Northern Ireland but we have one of the best if not the best transplant unit in I would say probably say the world but we have an excellent live donation program so it was kind of a given who out of mummy and daddy is going to be a match to donate and who is the better match and it was quite clear I knew what my blood group was so it was quite clear from the offset that I wasn't a blood group match so we knew that David's daddy was a blood group match so he was tested and it was sort of just a given that David's daddy was donating his kidney to him and we just needed to get to four so we got there on the 24th of October David's daddy went into the city hospital so that's the other thing we have a children's hospital and an adult's hospital so they're not together 
So David's daddy was in the city hospital and David was in the children's. So David's daddy stayed overnight and at about eight o'clock the next morning on the 25th of October 2016, David's daddy went down to get his kidney removed and I was in the children's with David and the city hospital rang over at about 11 or half 11 and said the kidney has been removed, all has went well, we are on our way. So at that stage then David was brought down to theatre to be knocked out and that was pretty traumatic because you were handing your baby over for a very long time and we call theatre Neverland like Peter Pan so we had at the time we had a story for David that he was going to Neverland and daddy was going to be in Neverland and because he liked Peter Pan so we had this story so we actually still call theatre Neverland David you're going to Neverland so he went down and the anaesthetist knocked him out and I went back to the ward and I'll never forget it. The surgeon who took Jim's kidney out came up to the ward with a big white box with Jim's kidney, which Jim's kidney was in, and said, it's been removed. Here, I'm on my way. You can go over to the city now and see Jim. So I was like, right, okay. And off he went with the white box down to theatre to the other surgeon. So there was two surgeons. And I went over to see Jim, David Saturday, and he was still a wee bit out of it, but he seemed fine. I stayed there till about five o'clock in the evening. And then I came back over because I was expecting David out at about half five. Came back over and he didn't come back out. But his renal consultant had rang to say everything was going well. The kidney was pretty big and David was pretty small, so they were having difficulty closing him up. But it was just going to take a bit longer than what we had thought. So I sort of knew at that stage it was fine. Yeah, and David came out about half seven, eight o'clock that night. And that was a wee bit surreal because you were in hospital with your child and then Jim was in another hospital and you can't be in two places at once. So that was a wee bit different to be fair and then yeah and then they just managed David and his bloods and his sodium levels and all that kind of stuff in intensive care and you know as a parent I absolutely hate intensive care well not well because it's intensive care but I also hate it because the nurses are fully in control and you have spent all your days caring for your child you know your child inside out and it's like touch them at your peril touch our buttons and you're dead you know so I really struggle with intensive care because it's basically sit there and we're doing the work so I find that pretty hard because your natural instinct is just to to do everything for him so we did that and David is also autistic and we didn't know that at the time but he would only drink water So he wouldn't drink diluted juice, wouldn't drink any other form of juice. They were trying to manage his sodium level so they wouldn't let him drink the water. And, you know, he was four years old. There was Mary Hale going down in intensive care because, you know, they were pumping lots of fluids into him. That's the bit that David remembers, that he wasn't allowed to drink any water. And that's the bit that I remember because he was inconsolable. 
till the next morning and then it all leveled off and he was fine and about 11 o'clock on the 26th of October maybe half 11 David's daddy walked into intensive care and there he was so he had got out the next morning so it was still pretty sore but yeah he was able to make it over from the city and yeah I think he was sore probably for about a month after it like not a you know just an uncomfortable sore it wasn't but he made it look actually pretty easy to be fair and then we spent two weeks in hospital and it was quite clear from the outset that David wasn't going to be an easy patient so within about maybe seven days he took toxicity to the anti-rejection medicine so he had to go back down and get a biopsy done because his creatinine just jumped and we didn't know why so he took toxicity to the anti-rejection medicine and then from the end for about the next 10 months he was just constantly ill he was constantly catching bugs he was constantly having urine infections but also showing no symptoms so it was only when we went for routine bloods that we would see that his creatinine was rising so we had lots of biopsies after that to try and determine he had pyloforitis, he had a severe kidney infection, and he was literally doing somersaults in the ward, like literally doing somersaults, and they couldn't understand. So he had lots of complications. And then at 10 months, he, again, the creatinine jumped, and he had to go for a biopsy. And at that point, it was quite clear that he had rejection. So he had to have plasma exchange. And for I'm sure some people know what plasma exchange is. So it's a line in your neck. And it's a bit like dialysis. Only it's your plasma. They're taking out your plasma and washing the antibodies. So we had that for about five days. And the problem with that is that we didn't have a pediatric plasma exchange. So the plasma exchange team had to come from adults over with their machine to the children's to do plasma exchange and steroids and that leveled off that held the kidney function so you know ideally we were hoping to get 15 20 years out of that kidney it was quite clear at that point that that wasn't going to happen when I asked his consultant how long do you think he's going to get she said I think between five to seven years but I could be wrong so that was fine we went away eventually probably after about 18 months to two years it all settled and he was fine you know he had the kidney function that he had and we probably got two more years of no hospital admissions no infections living life to the full as David will you know as much as he possibly could within the remits of chronic kidney disease and then at that point you could see that the kidney was declining. So we are now six years in and his kidney has declined. And we did a live, you know, we went on TV to try and get live donors. I knew I wasn't a match. I thought I could have went into the UK wide pool, but they told me that my blood group was one of the rare ones and they really needed a more general you know, a more common blood group match to go into the UK pool. We got that and we got a donor to go in 
and we've done two runs so far of the UK wide pool and we haven't got a match. He's on the deceased donor list. We haven't got a match. Anybody who has come forward, which they said was substantial amount of people have come forward, he is not a match to any of those people. So we have a problem because the kidney is failing. There's no second kidney anywhere that we can find. And my promise to David was always to keep him off dialysis for as long as I possibly could for the rest of his life. You know, I would do my utmost to make sure he didn't go on dialysis. And about three weeks ago, the kidney was declining. We knew it was declining. And it was at that stage, right, it's now time to go on dialysis. So David had the hemodialysis line. But as part of the transplant journey, the transplant team knew that David was going to be hard to match. So they said, would you consider an an ABO incompatible transplant? So my blood group is AB and David's is B. So they decided to test me and test David to look into this. It's a relatively new transplant. It's not the go-to transplant it's not you know they much prefer you to be a blood group match and an antibody match but the alternative was going to be that David would be on dialysis for a very long time potentially and I'm not really prepared to sit back and just do so the transplant team as of last week have just agreed that I can donate to David but as an incompatible transplant, so the risk of rejection is higher, but the outcomes seem to be very, very good. So we are just basically now waiting on a date for that. That is quite a journey there from receiving the kidney from his dad to then having a lot of complications where he was having urine infections and a lot of hospitalisation to that finally settling and having those two years where he was able to be appointment free and get on with life and then to go back into rejection and then now looking at finding another donor and in the meantime being on dialysis. You as a family have been through so much and at such a young age to go through so much challenges and ups and downs. I mean, how have you managed that? How have you been able to get through all of that? I honestly don't know when I think about it too much. <laughs> it it scars the life out of me, but you just dig deep. You just have to get up every day and keep going. There's no alternative. What is the alternative? And don't get me wrong, like there's many a day I drive to work after leaving David at school and be roaring down the motorway because it has taken all his might to get up out of bed to face the world that day, you know, and me and all of us as a family. But you just, you just do it. You just have to. There are good days. There are bad days. You know, David absolutely loves drama. David wants to be a professional actor. Two weeks ago, before he got his dialysis line in, so on the Friday a week before he got his dialysis line in, David travelled to Dublin for his first paid professional role in drama, in acting. So 
you know, to see him reaching his full potential and doing things, you know, one Friday he's in Dublin filming and the next Friday he's being wheeled to theatre to get a, a hemo line in. You know, to see those things makes it all worth it. So, yeah, but it is a challenge. It is super hard and any parent of a child will see, with CKD, even though I don't have it, some days I feel like I do because I feel like I'm living it for him, if you know what I mean. The journey, the challenges that we face every single day, but we just have to do it. We just have to get up and get on with it. And, you know, at the minute, David is not happy. He's on dialysis and it is restricting him and his ability to do the things that he wants to do. And we can't control that. You know, the body is saying, right, David, you're tired. You know, we can't control that for him. And he'll just tell you, you know, chronic kidney disease sucks, mummy. And I'm like, do you know what it does? It's about validating those feelings because it does suck. But as I always tell him, it's only temporary. We will find a solution. And hopefully that solution is I give him a kidney and it works for a very long time. Doesn't, we'll then just, we'll have to face those challenges. But the alternative is to sit on dialysis the whole way through his teenage years, potentially with no donor. And I'm not prepared to do that as a mother. I'm just not. So, yeah, it's an emotional roller coaster and it teases you because you got those two years that were relatively good. And then it's like, bang, back in again, back with all the challenges, you know, managing sodium, managing hemoglobin, looking at creatinine, the urea, what's he eating, you know, all those things. Yeah, you just have to, it's a journey and nobody can prepare you, nobody. They can tell you, and I suppose that's probably my big thing with transplant. You know, it is, while it is the gift of life, it most definitely is. And when it works, it works extremely well. I am very clear that it is a form of treatment and it doesn't last particularly for children, they will not get their lifetime out of one kidney transplant. So they need multiple kidney transplants. So I do personally get a wee bit frustrated sometimes when you see the promotional, you know, oh, it's a gift of life. And it is, it most definitely is. But for our children, for children diagnosed with CKD from a young age, it is a form of treatment. And I don't think that we maybe tell that story enough in the kidney world. I don't think that we tell the story that it is a form of treatment. It's an alternative to dialysis because our kids will need more than one. The likelihood is two or three if you've got CKD from birth to get you through your lifetime. So yeah, so it, it's never going to end. You know, for David, it will always be, you know, even when he gets his next kidney, if he gets 20 years out of that, he's going to be 30. He's going to need another one or he's going to need dialysis. It's never going to end. So we have to learn how to live with it. So in terms of an incompatible kidney, in terms of the procedure and what they're going to do in order to make it compatible, do you know what it involves? Like how do they take a kidney that isn't compatible and make it compatible? It's the same, well, for me, it doesn't matter. I'll still lose the kidney in the same way that everybody else does. What they do is, I don't know the exact detail, but what they do is 
if you have the antibodies, high antibodies for the person who's donating, if it's high, they plasma exchange it. So they do the same as what they did in rejection. But they anticipate that David and I are such a good antibody match that he won't need that plasma exchange. So that is a plus. But most recipients who are receiving an ABO incompatible transplant will have plasma exchange before uh, maybe like a week of plasma exchange and a treatment beforehand before they go down then to receive the kidney. So that would be planned as part of the, the process before the date of donation. David and I are such a good match that we won't need to do that. So that's a benefit for him. Right. So your blood groups are incompatible, but your antibodies are compatible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. For what there is, there is relatively low. So they feel that he won't need the treatment, the plasma exchange beforehand, which is a benefit for him. So I know that when we had a discussion before, you mentioned that the workup process for kidney donation is slightly different in Northern Ireland. So would you like to share what that difference is? Okay, so we have a fantastic renal consultant in our transplant unit called Aisling Courtney. Courtney, she's the lead person in our transplant unit in Northern Ireland. And she has come up with a live donation day, basically. So people who volunteer to come and donate their kidney, they, once they get over the initial blood group, you know, take your blood and your urine and all that and make sure that you're fit and healthy enough to do it. In Northern Ireland, they bring you in for a full day and you go in at half seven in the morning and you're probably still there at five o'clock in the evening and you go through every test on that one day. Yeah, so we did that. We You did CT scans, bloods, MRIs, all these different, like you're put through your paces for the day, but it means that you don't have to keep coming backwards and forwards. You know, it's not delayed. It's all done in the one day and then they take all those results away and the team look at it the following week or the following two weeks and decide whether you're our donor. So that makes the process a lot easier because you don't have maybe eight or nine hospital visits before or a year of waiting about. You go in on one day and you know within a couple of weeks whether you are going to be a match and a donor. So yeah, and you get x-rays and the first one for me was, we're going down to make sure you have two kidneys. And I was like, what? That never entered my head that I wouldn't have two kidneys. So, you know, yeah, so that was the, the, yeah, we did all of that on the one day. Yeah, so it was pretty easy, pretty straightforward. And then they tell you whether you can donate or not at the end. So everything is condensed in the one day. So essentially, you know, a lot faster whether you're compatible than able to donate yeah yeah most definitely so I wanted to talk a bit more about the psychological side and the invisibility of CKD because as anyone living with CKD would know me speaking as an adult the number one thing people say to me is you don't look sick but when you have a child that is presenting healthy but has all those challenges that David has faced since birth, that must be even more difficult because 
as an adult, you can explain and you can kind of challenge people's misconceptions. But when a, a child might even be running around and, and you're saying, well, actually, they've got chronic kidney disease and they don't understand. Let's delve a bit more into that. So what have been the challenges in terms of the psychological side and the invisibility of the disease as a parent with a child with CKD? They have been massive, absolutely, you know, and God help the people who have got me on a wrong day, on a bad day, because I can't keep it shut. Um, It's very, very frustrating. People will say to you all the time, he looks great. I've had a person say to me, if you you give him to me for a day late, and I'm thinking, "Mm, off you go, give it a good go, let's see how well. Yeah, very, very frustrating. But parent, you just have to learn how to raise above that. But I suppose the big one is probably school. That's the big one. You know, teachers are lovely, they're sympathetic, but they don't actually get it. And when he is in school, he is presenting like a normal child, you know, but they don't see underneath the uniform where there's a feeding tube, there's a metrobinoff, now there's a hemolang. You know, he does present as uh, fit and uh, he doesn't look that bad you know he doesn't look sick but yet you've maybe been up all night with his head down a toilet and you've given him an anti-sickness tablet so he doesn't vomit or you know he has a feeding tube on all night because you're flushing him with so much water like three or four liters of water a day it's very very frustrating and it does come at a cost for David you know because the psychological elements of that and of of kidney disease in general is massive I think it's massive for any CKD patient but I think it's probably particularly hard for kids because in one hand they don't understand their emotions they don't understand and that is hard and I probably firmly believe I suppose we're 10 years into this journey but I believe that from the initial diagnosis, whether you like it or not, you should have a renal psychologist and you should be attached to one that you can tap into whenever you need it because the illness is so unpredictable that you could be fine for six weeks and then all of a sudden it's like crash land. So I do definitely think that we don't do enough around the psychology element and the trauma that comes along with it even on a good day you know there's trauma so I feel very passionately about that and I feel very strongly about that that we in the kidney community tell the success stories and tell all the great things and the benefits but we don't in some ways explain or sell the downsides the disadvantages enough and I suppose some people prefer to keep their illness to themselves you know and don't like to go and that's fair enough but I do think that we're doing uh, children and adults a disservice by not talking about the disadvantages as, as well that people or children and adults with CKD have to live with on a daily basis the challenges are immense and you can never explain it to anybody unless they've had it or they are a close close family member And that's why I think the kidney community is so important and so helpful because they are the people that actually really get you through. It's not 
you know, your friend or your cousin or your, because they, they're not living with you. They're not living with it day and daily. And even for the kids, it's great to see, well, you know, there's somebody else who hasn't been trouble enough or there's somebody else who's had a transplant or, you know, it's good for them to see or, you know, the older kids versus the younger kids. Well, you know, there's the teenagers now, look at them. They've had a transplant, they're off moving on to adults and, you know, you can see the journey. So I think all of that is super important to keep everybody sane, basically, is probably the best way to put it. But yeah, I mean, the psychological damage is just heartbreaking. But all you can do is make sure, as a parent, is make sure that your child has the skills and the support to overcome those challenges. And to be fair, David does definitely have his challenges, but he does take them well, to be fair. But yeah, the line at the minute is chronic kidney disease sucks. Yeah, it does for everybody. So what are the disadvantages and challenges that you would like to highlight? I suppose the mental trauma that people don't see, you know, people don't see the being sick in a hospital bed, the, the maybe the three different doctors having to come and do your bloods because you can't get any blood out of a child. You know, it's not the same as an adult. Like you, you literally need about four people to hold them down till you get the blood out of them. You know, there, there's trauma in all of it, but yet you present your child, you know, with two arms and two legs and a smile on their face. And it's like, obviously there's nothing wrong with them, do you know? I just think that they need more support, that adult support, you know, that psychological support to manage their emotions because they are internalized. They are there. And I mean, I don't know about yourself, but I'm sure there there have been difficult days for you, but you just, you know, you either know how to manage those or you're able to find support for kids. They don't, you know, they don't understand. They don't know, but and even for us as, as adults, you know, it is a trauma. You do have to, to be able to manage those. And I do think we should talk about that an awful lot more than what we do. Absolutely. And like you said, yes, as an adult, when people ask me how I am, you know, how is it living with CKD? I always say good days, bad days. And that's the best way that I can express it. There's days where, you know, you're on top of the world. And there's some days where you just, like your son says, CKD sucks. So, yeah, absolutely. So my final question to you is, what words of encouragement do you have for parents who have children living with CKD? My words of encouragement would be just keep going, dig deep and just keep going because there is, and it does make me quite emotional, but there is light at the end of the tunnel. Just keep going and firmly believe that, that, there is light and it will get better. There is good days and there's bad days, but just keep going because they need you to be strong. They need you to keep going for them. So to just keep going. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for sharing the story of your family, David's story, everything that you have been through. You have been so amazing so encouraging I really take my hat off to you genuinely because your journey it's so inspirational the highs and the lows that you've been kind to share with us thank you so much I know that this will help so many parents 
listening and knowing that they are not alone in their journeys with their children with CKD. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm going to give the final word to David, who has joined us for the last part of this interview. And David, what is your message of encouragement for children who are living with CKD? Just keep going. Thank you for listening to Diary of a Kidney Warrior podcast. And don't forget that you can contact me on social media using the handle Diary of a Kidney Warrior. Please do subscribe to the podcast and please do tell a friend. New episodes of this podcast are released every other Monday. Until next time, take care and choose to live. Diary of a Kidney Warrior, sharing faith, knowledge, hope, and love.